Hello, and welcome to this week's episode. I had been thinking about dedicating an episode to Children of Men pretty much since starting this podcast, but as it turns out, there was no better time than now to really take a deep look at this screenplay and the book that it's based on by the British writer P.D. James. It explores the concept of finding hope when humanity no longer believes it has a future and the various ways that people respond to catastrophe. I think this is one of the best episodes I have had the pleasure of recording so far, so I truly hope you enjoy this talk and get a lot out of dissecting the important issues that are raised in Children of Men and revisit your memories of the film. So without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined by my good friend and favorite regular, Alan Vasquez. Alan, how are you surviving these days? I'm doing good, trying to keep myself busy. Um, I have a lot of time to watch films and do a bit of writing. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep creative. I think uh, it's a very interesting time to sort of be creative because there's a lot going on in terms of our livelihood kind of shifting so greatly that you know it's taken a while to kind of get used to that rhythm and and also be creative because i think that's one of the things that happens is when you're in that sort of survival mode when you're not sure what you're gonna do like there's not a lot of room for creativity in a way but yeah i've been doing my best to try to stay creative watch films do this podcast with you it was a great pleasure to do children of men this week I really have a whole new respect for the film. I've always really liked the film, and I haven't seen it a lot of times, but I think watching it this time and given sort of, I think because of what's going on, I think it might have given me a a different lens to kind of feel the film in a different way. I think that's maybe what happened. That's why I felt it so deeply this time. But yeah, no, I'm just very thankful that we're doing this one this week. It It was a treat. For sure. And reading the book, which I hadn't read. Now that we're in week four or five at the time of recording this, I think it's time to be looking at, even though there are many doors that have been closed, which doors are opening in response to the fact that everything has moved online. Obviously, with podcasting, we have the ability to to keep putting these episodes out. We do have to record from different locations, but it can still be done. Film reviews can still be done. Film criticism posted online. Writing has always, at its most basic level, only ever required a pen and paper. Right. And so, as writers, I think it's always good that there's not so many external limitations, not so much in terms of you actually need all of these materials in, in order to write. Right. However, of course, it, it does feel strange, and I feel that it can also seem like there's not much of a future at the moment and we don't really know what what's to come and when things are going to go back to normal but i think maintaining our sanity is the first the first thing and then creativity and productivity can come second yeah and i think the the best part about this whole thing is you know we can watch films from the comfort of our home you know if screenwriting is something that you know you feel passionate about then the the tools are all there I think the biggest challenge is just that self-motivation and self-discipline to really take the time to watch the films and dissect it. And now you have the time to uh, listen to all our podcasts, too. You know, they're all out there. 
it's a huge, huge learning opportunity. We have the ability to take plenty of time, learn from the greats, and take notes and develop our own styles in the meantime. Exactly. Very well put. And let's start talking about Children of Men. Children of Men, which, just to begin with, there's a nice long list of screenwriters involved in this project. So screenplay credits on Children of Men in order are Alfonso Cuaron, Timothy J. Sexton, David Arata, Mark Fergus, and Hawk Ostby. Each of these screenwriters, uh, Fergus and Ostby, are a writing duo, and the others have all had their own particular input into the screenplay. And we've also read P.D. James's original novel, The Children of Men. The project actually started with an English director called um, Paul Chart, who had adapted the book. It was then given to Fergus and Ostby, who are probably more well-known as part of the team that did the screenplay to Iron Man, and they're the creators of the TV show The Expanse. Then Quaron was brought onto the project in 2001 and began rewrites with Timothy J. Sexton after he finished uh, Y Tu Mama Tambien. Now, this is why you brought this story up to me, I think, originally, was because of the way that Quaron and Sexton were working, in that Sexton read the book and Quaron didn't read the book, right. so that he could have a fresh perspective on the story and how it was evolving. Maybe he felt limited, and when you read a book like that with so much world building involved, you might feel like you've absorbed parts of the story that aren't correctly conveyed in the screenplay. Yeah. And so maybe by maintaining that distance, he felt he could keep a good eye on how the story was progressing. And I was going to ask you what you thought was the reason why he chose that, because that is kind of a bold move to declare yourself a screenwriter that's going to adapt someone's work without reading that person's work. So it could potentially seem a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit arrogant or just disrespectful and not, you know, but the fact that he had Timothy read the book. So there was always that sort of a backbone to it, you know, um, and as we'll discuss more, I think he wanted to honor his own vision when he first read it. You know, I think he said the film just came to him when he was reading it. The book, which is really good, I think might have had started some influence on him had he read it. He wanted to be true to what he felt uh, initially. But yeah, that is one of the interesting aspects of this project is the fact that it's very similar to the book and it's so different at the same time. Yes. So while Quaron was working on Harry Potter, The Prisoner of Azkaban, mm -hmm. David Arata was brought in to finish the script, but actually the version that is available is the Quaron Sexton version. So we can see the differences that occurred between their draft and the final film. Right. And we'll be talking about a few of those differences over the course of the episode. But in general, it felt to me like most of the story the heart of the story that we got in the film was pretty much in that draft by that point. Yeah. There's some plot elements that were changed, some characters that, you know, their fate and sort of their role in the film was slightly tweaked here and there. But you're right. I think ultimately it is kind of the same thing. I personally feel that this is the best work in terms of since we've started this whole thing that I see 
art in the film reflect the art in the book? And kind of what you just said is like, it extracted the heart of the book into the palette that is a film, even though it's so different. That's what I was so struck by was that it felt like the book, you know, and there were, there's, there's even some scenes that are very similar to the book. So I kind of feel that maybe Timothy or other of the writers that were involved probably felt that there were some parts of the book that were worth incorporating into the script. They certainly kept a lot of the characters' names, which they're not even really the same characters, but they kept the names. And yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll start talking about it more to see how exactly uh, the screenwriters were able to do that, which is what I'm excited to talk about. Yeah, the first thing I wanted to talk about is actually, do you remember the first time you saw Children of Men and what your impressions were at the time? I do. I remember really loving it. I remember my biggest takeaway from the film was just how immersive it felt. You know, this was before I went to film school, before I really started looking into filmmaking. It just felt as an audience member, I was like literally thrust into this you know voyage with these characters because it feels like it's all kind of happening in real time especially the way it's shot you know there's these really long takes and you know you're just kind of very immersed in this world and the world building of it i I just remember being very moved by the ending too i think the film has a, a very bleak sort of tone and i remember by the time we got to the ending when i first watched it i was very moved by the humanity behind it all, even though it was a very dark film and very gritty and suspenseful. But yeah, I loved it when I first watched it. Yeah. So I first saw it, I would think, on the Isle of Wight. So I was living in England. I was about 17, I think, when it came out. I saw it at the cinema. And it was just, for lack of a better word, mind-blowing. I think it was utterly compelling it left a really lasting impression on me and has done ever since. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that the country was still reeling from the terrorist attacks that had happened in London the year before. And there was a reflection on screen of where certain routes that we could take politically could end us up. It was highly reflected in the way that Britain was being portrayed at that time, 20 years in the future, and what it had become. And I think that was a big part of why it was so powerful and shocking, was because it felt so authentic, and it felt like it was taking place in a place that we could still recognize. And it's interesting reading what Alfonso Cuaron was saying about how he went about directing how the locations should be designed. He talked about making it more like Mexico, taking areas of London that he was familiar with and then saying, oh, but what would we have in Mexico in this place as well? Right. And that weird blend of chaos underlying a lot of the the more structured elements of society is what we see in films like Amores Perros, which Timothy Sexton had a a crew credit for and obviously was a part of that and had been living in Mexico City and Guadon had, had come from Mexico City as well. So it's it's very interesting, this blend of the very believable elements of 
British society, and then that that infusion of just something a bit foreign and a bit different, just to kind of create that sense of a, a more chaotic future. Yeah. So pretty much, you know, the the key to making England or London specifically look a little dystopian is just sprinkle a little Mexico City on it, you know, <laughs> and then you got it. But yeah, no, I, I did hear that too. You know, he wanted to make it like Mexico City and kind of give it that grungy, grungy look, which, you know, he succeeded in and not just like the production design, but just the look of the film. You know, it has a very consistent look, a very murky, gray sort of, you know, it just makes you feel like you're in a very cloudy day in London. And I think the cinematography reflects a lot of that stuff, which is kind of what, you know, as we go along, I'll kind of want to reiterate part of the reason why I feel these scenes worked and why the film worked as a whole in reflecting what the book was. It reminded me as a screenwriter what good adaptation work is. Because when you're writing a script, you're writing it for the visual format. And I think the reason why the film really feels like the book is because it translated the literature into how can we show you all this world building, but in a visual format. And so even the script has a lot of the foreground, a lot of the background in the film and how the world is being lived in and how everything is being shown to you. And I think that's really important as screenwriters is to keep that in mind so that we can keep the dialogue so we can keep sort of like the basic story structure there. So one thing caring about the listener and knowing that it's more likely that they will have seen the film, but less likely that they will have read the book. Right. I think it's best that we don't give away the ending of the book. And I'd rather leave an invitation to the listener to go out, seek out the book and read it because it is a very, very, very interesting work of literature. It's very compelling. In my opinion, it's a very slow start. And the whole first half of the book will leave you completely shocked by how quickly it transforms in the second half. And the film seems so much more like the second half of the book. The first half of the book feels like it's set almost in the 1950s. It's very quaint. It's about Theo Farron, who is in the book's version, he's an Oxford professor of history. He's far more removed from the underworld, let's say. He lives in the upper class of society. He lives in an ivory tower. He's not so aware of everything that's going on in the world around him. And he's slowly brought into it. And the reason he is, is because he has a cousin. His cousin just happens to be the tyrant, the dictator of fascist Britain, who is a man called Zan. And... Most of the book is about the differences between Theo and Zan. They both grew up in the same household, essentially, but they have diverted as they've grown older and become adults. Zan went in, into politics and Theo went into academia. Yeah. And Theo was a part of the council that was ruling Britain for a while, but he became disillusioned with the way the country was being run and decided to put it all behind him and just go to Oxford teach history to the last few people that wanted to study it, which is the book suggests is very few people because history informs the future and no one cares about the future anymore, right. having no future generation to pass on to. 
the book is set out in an interesting format. It has diary entries, so you hear Theo's personal thoughts, his private thoughts. You're following the evolution of his conscience. And then you also have third-person narratives as well, entire chapters that are told entirely in the third person, separate from Theo and giving you a more objective view of what's going on and the interactions between the characters. Yeah, I really, I love that. I love that we got a little bit of um, Theo's thoughts and then we got like the bigger picture. Also, Theo is very different in the book. There's a lot of similarities, I think. You know, they're both kind of come from a very dark sort of uh, past in regards to their kids and marriage and all that stuff. I find the Theo in the book is a bit darker or a bit more cynical about things. I think he's got a darker past. Definitely. His his past is, is horrible because the film Children of Men has Theo who has lost a child. Yeah. But it's not his fault. Right. It, it was due to flu. In the screenplay, the child dies during a riot at a, what started out to be a peaceful demonstration. The police come in to put down the demonstration. It turns into chaos, and the child dies during that. But Theo's not entirely to blame for it, but it does explain the distance between Julian, his ex-wife, and himself in the future. It was really interesting to find that in the script towards the end, kind of to find out what happened with the kid. But I did find that it was almost good that they took it out. You know, I think the the explanation as to what happened to his kid came way later in the film. And at that point, it didn't really quite matter anymore. So and I kind of like the ambiguity of it. But yes, um, the child in, in the book goes through a much darker, darker fate. And I do agree with you. I do think you guys should read the book. I do think it's an amazing book. I, I loved the descriptions of everything. You know, I think P.D. James is a brilliant author. I, I was immersed. The first half is a bit slower than the second one. And there is a bit of a shift in terms of pacing when you get to the second half of the book. But I, I loved the feeling of it. The reason why the second half is so suspenseful and so gripping and intriguing is because of all the work she did in the first half. She set up everything brilliantly and i think uh it's not just about the political aspects but like society there's no more kids that you know no more babies are being born and how does that shape not only just like politicians but just normal people mothers and and academics and all of that so i think a, a lot of work went into really detailing this world which really made that first half really really great yes so in the book theo is responsible for his child's death Entirely. It's entirely his fault. Mm -hmm. And his daughter dies when she is two years old. He reverses the car out without realizing she's behind the car and kills her. And this leads him to separate from his wife. Julian is not his wife or not the name of his wife in the book. There is a character called Julian who is a member of the Five Fishes. But as we'll see, that she is a completely different character. And a lot of the names that are used in the film are just kind of homages to the names that were used in the book, but they're not really the same characters. And actually, different things are flipped around, but just with a, a little nod towards the legacy from the book. Yeah. But I think that having Theo as this character with such a dark backstory 
and so much guilt. There's a line in the book that says, he had been responsible for the death of one child. That was enough. And you can really see what compels him to try and ensure the survival of humanity. When it really comes down to that moment, he has to make a decision about whether he's going to help the pregnant woman or not. It all comes down to that. It's the fact he's got this past in which he screwed up his chance of raising a child. And suddenly, not only does he have a responsibility to help this next child be born, but it's the only child <laughs> that's going to be born. It's, it's such high stakes for the entirety of humanity, but he also has that very touching personal connection to fatherhood and the chance to turn it around, to have a second chance at life and do it right this time, perhaps. But I do understand why the film moved away from that idea a little bit. I think it's easier in literature to get behind a character because you can get inside their emotional state a lot easier. Whereas in a film, you've always got a little bit of detachment and it would be hard to get the audience to be sympathetic towards a character who had killed his own child. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great character piece, the book, you know, because of all the reasons you just said. The arc of the character is very important because throughout most of the book, there's not really much regret or much emotional dwellings on the past. You know, he's a bit emotionally closed off from, from most of the book. And then obviously when he gets caught up in all this, all this stuff, I think that's when like, you know, he starts shifting his perspective constantly until we get to that point that you were talking where he made his choice and he's all in, he's all about saving this kid. And at that point it feels very powerful because we've seen this sort of like growth and very fast growth because for the first half of the book, he doesn't really change much. You know, he tries to hear them out a little bit, the the five fishes, and he tries to to maybe, you know, just see what what's going on. But it, he's still kind of like, he'd rather not get involved. In a way, you can get a character in a film to be a character piece if you're constantly focused on the character and there's a lot of acting going on and all that good stuff. But I think for this film, they, they did not do that because... Theo, the Clive Owen version, he mostly served for us as the audience, a sort of a blank slate for us to project ourselves into this world. I think if Theo had too much going on in the film, it would have been too much about that and not so much about humanity and so much about what the real story is, which is constantly happening in sort of the foreground of this, the film, but we're seeing it through the lens of, of him as sort of this everyday guy kind of a thing. Um, and we're just kind of placed firmly there. So I think maybe that was the shift they decided to go with. And I think that was probably the, the good choice in order for them to, to stick to the themes of the book. Yeah, he's an everyman and that allows the audience to project some part of themselves more easily into the character. Yeah. Especially as he's in the film, he's primarily the vehicle for saving humanity in a way he's the one who is expected to make the sacrifice whereas theo as a character in the book is the opposite of his cousin zan who has transformed britain into a fascist dictatorship and so despite the darkness in his past there's this constant comparison to this other person who 
might not have killed his own child, but he's subjected the entire country into utter misery and arguably is enjoying it. He's he's yeah. proud of what he's doing and thinks he's in the right, whereas Theo, a terrible accident happened in his life and he's got to live with that guilt forever. But at the heart of it, he probably would be a better leader than his cousin because he's not going to sell out morally, ethically in the same way. And because he just doesn't really want the power. In the book and in the film, one of the things that I picked up on is that most of these characters have an agenda. You know, everyone who's in this sort of position of, of power, whether it be in the five fishes or the other end of the spectrum, there's this sort of agenda. And I think uh, with Theo, I think he, we're constantly reminded that he doesn't really want anything. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have any sort of idea of what to do with the child. He just wants to care for the child. There's little tidbits in the screenplay. Well, it's actually, I didn't see it in the screenplay, but in the film, there's a lot of instances where animals um, warm up to to Theo. You know, you have a cat that starts crawling on his leg, mm-hmm. the dog, and there's like an offhanded comment where one of the guys says like, oh, the dog likes you. He doesn't like anybody. There's these little like hints that's kind of subconsciously feeding you. Here's a character who animals are gravitating towards who probably has a nice sort of a clean vibe compared to the other people that are constantly in that realm, which is they want something. There's violence. There's there's all these sort of uh, scheming and manipulation kind of going on. So I think that is ultimately how I felt like by the end of the film is that he wasn't this great superhero. He wasn't trying to save anything. I think he was just an, an average person, a good human being. You know, I don't think the film or the book try to make him into some sort of superhero. I think that's what I really loved about the story is that it's really just about uh, an average guy who, you know, at the end just tries to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think that's a really good insight is that you could do this in a normal screenplay by having children react positively to the character. That would show that they're inherently kind of a good person as well. But that's not possible in Children of Men. So it's interesting that right it then can be replaced by this we we trust animals because we know they have instinct right and one last point on the book like i said even though i really enjoyed reading it and i would love to really break down every aspect of it and how it compares to the story now that i'm thinking about it i really want people to go out and read it for themselves and i won't reveal who this is in relation to but i do think that that book had the most heartbreaking and beautiful suicide note I've ever seen in a work of literature. Mm. That moment mm. was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great book. And um, yeah, one thing I will say is that um, if you like the film, I think the, the book does a great job of sort of fleshing out all the stuff that's kind of in the peripherals of the film. Uh, one of the things that doesn't quite play in the film is this quietus. Quietus is a process that happens in the future. And it's really interesting if you guys want to read the book. It's this whole aspect of society and kind of how some people are dealing with with the situation in the future. And in the screenplay, it was included in there in the beginning a little bit, but they took that out because it wasn't in the film. Yes, it's included uh, for Janice, right? For Jasper's wife. Yes who is 
she's more lucid in the screenplay and has moments where she's she's aware whereas in the film we only really see her staring into the distance and we don't really know if there's anything that could be done for her right and it's not suggested that she's ever conscious yeah and aware of what's going on in the screenplay she was able to to go to the quietus and and take part in it in the book it's it's a major plot device right but it also illustrates a lack of hope a lack of aspirations and reasons to go on living in in the world one last point about the book actually even though i know you've said in your opinion it the film really captures the essence of the book for me i do think there is one huge major difference which is i feel that the book the children of men is a religious work i think it is highly highly inspired by christianity and is a at its heart it is a christian tale it's not a by any means a book that wants to preach or anything like that but i think it finds its sense of hope and its moral compass in something akin to the traditions of the anglican church of just the english form of christianity and alfonso cuaron's version of children of men is completely secular it's postmodern it's beyond the point that we can engage with religion in this world it's everything's gone so wrong why would you be turning to religion of all things in a world where there's no future generations and i think it's worth bringing up actually where the title comes from so in the book the funeral rites are read and the lines theo has to read this from the prayer book and it says lord thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another before the mountains were brought forth or ever the earth and the world were made thou art god from everlasting and world without end thou turnest man to destruction again thou sayest come again ye children of men for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday seeing that is past as a watch in the night and it's really powerful in the moment it's used i feel that it also gets to the heart of one of the big themes of the book which is about this this idea of humanity itself being transitory being something theo as a as a student of history he discusses this with jasper that all these other species have been wiped out in the past loads of other species have disappeared why should humans be any different and at the heart of christianity and the jewish tradition it comes from is this belief that god is somehow caring for humans that they are selected they are special and they will always be cared for from generation to the next and the fact that there is no future generation it's a sudden realization that well what was the purpose of everything what was it it's it's part of this idea i think the jews called it the the covenant with god you know this belief that no matter what happens there'll always be a future generation life will be allowed to go on and with that absence it's it's really a shock to humanity yeah yeah and and in both the film and the book are are quite a, an exploration of that i think for going back to the religious thing the book definitely has a lot more to do with religion uh, you have a character who i believe is a priest mhm luke luke 
in the screenplay it said he is a priest. Yeah. But I think all of the lines relating to that are taken out by the time the film is edited, yeah. Right. But I do feel like the I think the film is more spiritual in nature, but kind of similar to those lines because there's a lot of visuals that kind of recall kind of biblical images. You know, you have uh, when we have Key, who when she finally reveals her pregnancy, you you know, she's in a barn, similar to the Virgin, and mm-hmm. and yes. in the barn, you know, you have a. There's a very crazy image towards the end when they're in that war torn refugee camp and they're you know trying to get to safety and you know the camera just kind of pans to the left and you see this mother who's holding her her dead son and she's like wailing kind of reminiscent to you know mary and jesus i feel like you know the the film does play with the imagery a little bit but the book is it's fascinating because you can definitely feel the catholic aspect i guess yes and quadon i think part of why Children of Men, the film, I think in many other directors' hands, it would have lent into the ideas and themes that are presented in the book. Yeah. But with Quadon, I've watched the documentary of him working on Roma. I've watched behind the scenes of Children of Men. And the way he operates, the way he talks about the material he makes, the way he talks about his films, he never wants to give answers. He doesn't want to create what he calls expositionary cinema where everything has to be explained and there's all this backstory to everything. He loves for his films to be open-ended, for the audience to make up their own minds about them, for them to interpret them in whichever way that is coming to them. And even with the ending of Children of Men, Quadon said he thinks that if you're a positive person, you will see positivity in the final scene. And if you are a negative person, you will see bleakness. And I really connected with that statement because having watched it when it came out in 2006 and having watched it again recently, my own opinion has changed significantly because back then I really did think it had a bleak ending. And right now I think it has a hopeful ending. So you're more positive now. So I guess I'm more positive now, yes. And this is the way of measuring it, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know. That's good. Yeah, I love that. I I think that that's why I really love his uh, filmmaking. You know, he doesn't try to beat you over the head with something. And I think he likes to provoke ideas, too. It's a conversation piece. It's all these visual elements. And, you know, you have um, these themes that you can talk to people afterwards when you're watching, which is what we're doing now. Let me see if I have anything left here for the book itself. I don't. Just go read it. If, you, if It's a really great book. Um, just, and how we mentioned before, the screenplay and the film, they're, they're pretty much almost the same. There's a couple of major differences in terms of like what happens when type of thing. But pretty much everything's there. I think Afonso probably didn't write a lot of it like literally because I don't think that's his first language which is why we probably have all these writers but I think what comes through is his influence a lot in terms of the action that's being written he's very specific in his action and usually what I really love is that the specifics usually reveal a lot about a character 
whether it be one line or two lines, you know, you have, this is something that I really enjoyed about this film that doesn't always happen in a science fiction film, especially a science fiction film set in the future or that's world building. There's a moment with Julianne Moore and Clive Owen where he just was captured and he's being interrogated. And so it's his first time back with Julian. So there's a bit of a reminiscence of, about their past. So this is the type of dialogue that gives you a sense of their history without beating you over the head of what happened. They, they sound like they're having a normal conversation. It doesn't sound like they're trying to let the audience know, oh, yeah, we had a son and like this happened. We met when we were this, this and that. You know, I think she asked him like, oh, you know, I'm sorry to hear about your parents. And Clive Owen responds with, uh, were yours in New York as well? She's like, yeah. And then, so just by that, like, they don't need to tell you what happened in New York. They don't need to tell you anything. The thing is, is like something bad happened in America and, and it affected them personally. And I think that's, that's brilliant. I love it when that's a great example of just a couple lines just speaks volumes because then you're brought into the equation, your own imagination is kind of invited to fill in the gaps. Yes, the film is very vague about what's happened, and I think it's effective by doing so. By not being too specific, you also don't have to ask too many questions either. You simply have this understanding that things are going badly elsewhere, right. and no matter how crazy this version of Britain seems, it's not as bad as some other parts of the Earth at this point in time. And in the screenplay, there's there's different references to another southern uprising in the United States, and essentially a, a new confederate movement is kind of sweeping up through the nation and invading northern states and stuff like that. And I think it was best to just take that out because you, you're drawing these particular lines in the sand where they don't need to be drawn. I think it's enough to know that if Britain is like this and the scenes that they're seeing on the news are showing that things are going badly in other countries. That's all we really need to worry about. We don't need specifics or to pretend that this particular resistance group is doing this or that. It detracts from the main center of the plot and the, the storyline overall. Yeah, and kind of going back to the beginning, you know, we start the film with the death of Diego, which is the youngest person alive mm -hmm. and i really love what they did with his little story in the beginning because it sets up not just the whole plot but it sets everyone's attitude you know you have a whole bunch of uh citizens along with theo watching the news and you can just see the heartbreak you can see the emotional investment and you're literally witnessing humanity going through this whole tragic situation that they find themselves in and you don't have to show more than that you've already seen how the citizens are responding to this you see shortly after that when theo leaves there's a bomb that goes off just by showing you in five minutes you you get the world it is that we're living in in this story that opening sequence is really important i think for so many reasons one of them is just a, an important character detail that Theo, despite everyone else being utterly shocked and staring at that screen, Theo sees that as an excuse to push to the front of the, the line and get his coffee. He knows that it's significant, but he doesn't really care. And the way he's described in the screenplay 
every character always gets one or two, maybe three lines of character description in a screenplay, and that's all you really have to go on. And with Theo, it's detached, unkempt, scruffy beard, glasses. Theo is a veteran of hopelessness. He gave up before the world did. And so he hasn't cared for 18 years. It was before that last child was born that he actually cared about what was going to happen. Right. Because he'd already lost faith. That was what it all came down to. He lost faith. He lost his sense of hope in there being a brighter future. And that ties into his character being recast as an ex-activist. Someone who had tried to create a better world and it hadn't worked out. The, the goals were not achieved. I think that was a great adjustment for the character too, because it's about hope loss, right? So someone who gets involved with activism mm -hmm. obviously has a, a desire to, to do good things, a desire to change the world, a desire to contribute to humanity. And, you know, when we meet him, he's, he's drinking and, and obviously not in a good place. So I think that's a perfect um, pass to give this character so that his arc at the end of the, of the story feels more complete. And uh, one thing that I found really interesting was when I was reading the script is uh, he's mentioned to be American in the script. Yes, that's true. And yeah. then I was like, why is he why is he British in the actual film? So I looked up um, Clive Owen and 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 then uh, Clive Owen accents. So I'm like, is it because he doesn't know how to do like an American accent? Like why? You know, I don't know why I went that route, but um, he came up on this like top or top worst American accents and he came up. So I don't know if it was like, he just told Alfonso that he didn't really want to do an American accent, but it doesn't really matter in the story. Theo was never American in the book either. So no, he it, it does feel like maybe they wrote him as an American because they had someone else in mind to play the lead role that we don't know about. That's probably true because, you know, they wanted to maybe get like a big Hollywood star and usually they, they give you more money if you have a big star. So yeah, you're right. That might've had something to do with it. I do like that Julian is American. I think that's, mm. it just adds a bit more detail to a character for whom we get much less of a portrait and she gets much less screen time. And one thing I wanted to mention about Children of Men, because I rewatched Casablanca recently. And one of the things that really makes Casablanca a timeless film, just such a wonderful classic, is that the secondary characters, the cast of mm. characters around the two main, you know, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, there's all these brilliant characters just jumping up out of the background, just interjecting themselves in, in different scenes and then, and then going away for a little bit. And Children of Men does exactly that. You have Julianne Moore, right at the beginning. And then, of course, you have Michael Caine in one of his all-time best semi-comedic performances, but with a real heart and soul behind everything he's doing in that performance as well. You have the fascist pig, Sid. You have Marika, the, the gypsy woman. You have all these brilliant characters just kind of turning up at various points in the story. And I think that's a big part of it as well, why the film is so enjoyable is because it's not just Clive Owen with his brow furrowed for, for an hour and a half, you know? Like, you get these moments of real 
humor with Michael Caine on screen. Yeah. And all these small characters or supporting characters reveal not just a lot about the main character, which is Theo, but they bring a perspective of what the film is about. I think that's why it's so interesting. You're getting different flavors, you know, different perspective on what's going on. Um, I love the scene when Jasper and Theo are hanging out for the first time and they're smoking a joint and Jasper's trying to tell a joke. And then Theo just goes on this sort of rant about something that he, he, he was upset about. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know, Jasper at the end of his rant is like, you know, I'm just trying to tell a joke here. It's great because by him being himself, by him being the character that he is, we're also revealing the character of Theo. Exactly. Humorless, unless someone like Jasper can break him down a little bit. Which he did, you know, he's like, relax. Yeah, so I think I think that was great. Because then we see the, the, the sort of friendly side of Theo. And then, you know, you have all these other characters that bring out different sides. But you're right, all these little characters are very important to the film because you know you have the character of miriam who you know was a midwife so she brings that perspective into the story towards the end and and you know just gives more texture to the world gives more texture to the emotions and the journey that these characters are going through she is very different in the book as well than in the film you were talking about you know casablanca and how you have all these sort of supporting colorful characters i think Miriam's a good example of that too. You know, she's aesthetically, visually very different from all the characters around her. I think it's a good idea to kind of incorporate your story with memorable characters. You know, I think it's a a good way of adding to your story in terms of like just sort of the background that's going on. So I think the joke with Jasper was one of the David Arata rewrites. Some of the other stuff that I noticed that were added we see a bit more of Theo's workplace and they finally got rid of the idea that he was a professor, which was still lingering in the screenplay, the Sexton quite on version of the screenplay, but he was a history professor at King's College London. And now he's firmly just, he works in an office. We don't really know what he does and it doesn't matter. We care as much about his job as clearly he does. It seems like he's given up on that meaningless work a long time ago as well himself. Right. And is just, yeah, essentially drinking a lot to stay, just to to keep going and keep pushing forward. Another nice change between Jasper and Theo is when they're talking about the death of Diego. And in the screenplay, it's Jasper who said, oh, Diego was a wanker. And Theo says, well, he was the youngest wanker on earth. And it's flipped in the film. And I think that really fits in with the characters much better as well. It's Theo who's the negative one and Jasper who's equally, he sees that it's negative, but his only response is with humor. It's, he's got such a good nature to him. It's just, well, if you can't beat them, just laugh with them. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, and I'm sure a lot of that comes from also you know, talking to your actors. And I, I, I read that Clive Owen was very collaborative and he didn't get a screenwriting credit, but I think Guadon mentioned that he was very involved with some of the screenwriting parts. I think he would send them scenes and Clive would kind of give feedback that they really liked. So they would invite him to, to give more feedback. 
That makes a lot of sense as well, because one of the things I noticed in the screenplay is how American it is. And as a British reader, it stands out as very American, the screenplay. A lot of the dialogue, they use phrases like bro, pain in the ass, things like this that are just American phrases. I think that probably having those extra pair of eyes is were enough to just say someone wouldn't say this in in london this is how they would say it and so the the general gist of the sentences are still there but they've been reworded to be more colloquial english right yeah that's probably a big reason for that well i I think one of the things i really want to say about the the beginning of the film was how quickly it gets things to get going not just compared to the book but just in general you know it doesn't i think by page 12 we were kind of already you know he was already kidnapped in a van and already meeting with julian so i mean things kind of like they pick up fairly quickly i think the one of the subgenres of this film is it's a chase movie in a way there's a lot of constantly running away from things and trying to get from point a to point b and and a lot of it plays in real time. There's not a lot of breathing in a way. It, it, it's one of those films where like you are getting the story as the action is unfolding. So the action is constantly revealing a lot of the story in itself. Yeah, Theo is constantly on the move. We see him in a bit of a rush to get his coffee right at the very start. And then, of course, this bomb goes off. He goes into his workplace, comes out, goes to Jasper's gets kidnapped, ends up going on this huge kind of adventure. Then he has to go to see his cousin, try to get the transit papers, and he, he's basically on the mission of escorting Key from that point on. And there's just no time to slow down, no time to, to rest. And I think having that momentum throughout the story, it's completely different to as I said, the the book is a little more quaint in that sense. It's not until really towards the end when it's reached a point where there's no turning back that it ever has that kind of momentum. But for most of it, at one point, Theo goes away on holiday, essentially. <laughs> just in the middle of, of the book, it's just, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to go on a bit of a holiday for, for a few months. Yeah, but like the ending, oh my God, so suspenseful. Yeah, by the end, it, it has the exact same. Once once it's reached that point of there's no turning back, there is no turning back. But I think all of the different screenwriters who had read this book and were choosing to adapt it recognized that that was the quality in the book that really would work best on screen. Yeah, because it's all very visual. You know, It's something that you can capture on camera. These are moments that can be captured. I was completely thrilled by the the last few chapters. It was very gripping. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen next because it's so different from the film and these characters are different. So it was just as effective as the film. So the film is very much uh, a chase film. It's, it's pretty much like you're constantly going from location to location, sort of a reveal after reveal. You have this world and you're kind of peeling away at the layers you know in the beginning you have the five fish who who need his help you have someone from his past that comes back that needs his help we as the audience we don't know exactly what their main mission is except that they need his help and then the reveal of her 
being pregnant, I think that's when the whole thing shifts. And it comes at a much earlier point than the book. The book is, uh, I don't even know, I don't think even halfway there's a pregnant scene. No, it's about two thirds of the way in. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, kind of what I'm getting at is that in order to thematically be faithful to the book, I think you have to kind of just paint sort of the background with action as opposed to people talking about what is really happening. I mean, you have little, you have a few conversations like when he goes to visit his cousin, I believe, but it's, well, no, in the book, his cousin's the warden, but in the film, I think it's like someone that he was going to work for or who. Yeah. It's another government official, but he's, he's just, uh, he's, he's part of a, there's a bit of satire in there that it's essentially a pointless, a completely pointless government division because it's, collecting all of the art treasures of the world when there's no future generation to pass them on to anyway. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of a a very funny kind of insight as to, you know, what someone would do in a situation like that with, in regards to the art of the world. And also you kind of get a little glimpse as to another side of society in that world. I think it's the only really nice place we see in the entire film. Everything else is sort of rubble and gray and, and all that stuff and dirt. Yeah, and in in the book's version, society isn't as bleak, let's say. It's it's more about the fact that life seems so normal on the surface and then they uncover how insidious and dark totalitarianism actually has become for most of the people. And in the book, Theo talks about how they're preparing all the museums, everything, they're getting ready for the big day when they know that the doors are going to close, no one's going to visit them anymore, and this huge artistic legacy is just going to be left for whoever finds it next. Humanity has no plan B for this. It's just, we'll just leave everything as it was, and maybe aliens will find it, maybe another species will evolve that can comprehend it rationally at some point as well but until then we just leave it like a giant mausoleum it's it's a much more detached kind of feeling to the action-packed no room to breathe world of the film yeah and and another thing I, i i realized that the book feels very more dystopian in a way than the film because when we start the film you have people at a coffee shop. You have people still out and about. Um, it feels like closer to our current climate, also because they decided to go with the direction of refugees. Mm-hmm. And and that's not really in the book as much or at all, really. It's not really about refugees. And so I think going with that angle for the film, plus making it not necessarily like there's a dictator, you know what I mean? I think it's kind of more grounded in, in in a more sort of closer to modern society and the way things are run. But I think that's what makes it even scarier is because we're seeing something so close to how we're living, but one notch higher to what it could potentially exactly. be. It's, it's what you can't see can't harm you, but it still doesn't mean it's not happening. Whereas in the film, it's just right in your face all the time. 
the cages holding human beings, the deportations, the refugee camps, everything, it's in your face. And something about that does feel a little off because it does feel like the totalitarian society would try and hide that reality from its citizens. Mm. And that's something that's a bit closer to a 1984 version of Britain, I suppose, or or something like that. But I think with the film, of course, they were aiming to make comparisons to the modern world that would hit harder. And obviously, they're, they're making allusions towards not just the rights of illegals and legal citizens in the developed world, but there's definitely a feeling that it's a little bit more like an Israel-Palestine sort of situation, that there's just these these walls or, or cages or metal bars separating a completely repressed underclass and then normal society on the other side of those bars. Right. Pretty much in the same space, exactly. but one's in cages and one's not. And how... You know, it's just, it's very unsettling. I haven't seen the film in a few years. So watching it now, it just feels so much closer than ever. It feels very plausible. And that's the terrifying part of of Children of Men, definitely. It feels very plausible. Yeah. And then just going back to what you were saying, the rest of the world is way worse. So you have all these people, that's where all these refugees are coming from. Essentially, London's kind of like the last bit of good place that's left for a lot of Europe and, and the world. So it's it's in the foreground. It's, it's it's kind of in the background there about, you know, the whole refugee thing and, and, and all of that. And it's, I think it it's very reminiscent again of, you know, sort of a biblical feeling. You know, you have, you know, with, with Mary, Joseph and, and the baby, you know, there were, there were refugees too. They were traveling. They were, it's kind of got that vibe as well of just of a, a traveler, you know, and then just kind of like, well, we'll get to the, the ending a little bit uh, later, but I, I love the image of this baby being in the middle of this rubble in the middle of this like insane humanity. And here's this like hope purity in the middle in the midst of it all there's a big statement there in my opinion as well in the change to the character who becomes pregnant because the jamaican character in the book is miriam the midwife Mm -hmm. and the character that is pregnant is english Mm. and in this rewriting the sense that the mother of the future of humanity is a woman from an unspecified country, probably Jamaica or somewhere nearby, somewhere in the Caribbean, that's a big statement because it's not the person that the fascist government is going to want to be the mother of the future of humanity as well. And that says a lot without actually having to say anything, is changing that just slightly towards being oh, well, what would the government do if the future person didn't reflect the racist ideals that the government had created for itself as well? It, it makes the danger seem a lot more imminent and a lot a lot more severe for her as well. Mm, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't even really thought about that, but you're right. It's, it's, it's just subtext, I think. It's just yeah. underlying it. And I think you can take from it what you will, but it's 
intentional because it's such a clear change from the book. Yeah, and I mean, it would make sense. You know, we're seeing all these images of these refugees, mostly people of color, in cages. And, you know, that's where humanity's uh, first baby in 18 years is going to be. I'm also wondering if maybe because they say that humanity was birthed in Africa, if maybe that was something that was considered while they decided to pick the race of the, the baby. That's a good point, yeah. Um, one thing that I think, because obviously in the film, we don't find out that Kia is pregnant when we first meet her, but one of the best rewrites, it's a really, really minor point compared to the screenplay, but in the, the long one-shot car scene, which is utterly phenomenal, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it's the fact that when, when they're being chased and the guys on the motorcycle appear with a gun, Julian shouts out, cover key or protect key. And that rewrite, that's not in the screenplay. And I think that's one of the most telling lines of dialogue. It's suddenly, this woman is really special. If Julian is saying everyone else should do everything they can to protect her above everyone else, and we don't know why that is, it gets us thinking instantly. But that scene as well, I mean, I think we have to talk about it. I think it is one of the most incredible scenes in all of cinema. I rewatched it three times to try and figure out how it was filmed. And eventually I settled on the fact that there must have been some kind of green screen involved. Not at all. So do you know how they, they managed to film it? I do, yes. So they had a what they referred to as a sophisticated little brick. It incorporates uh, a device called the Sparrowhead from Doggy Cam. And then they have these two power slides that are moving, able to move the camera robotically forward, back, left and right, turn it 360 degrees. And then the actors were able to drop down their seats in the car and move around and shift around to allow the camera to move into certain positions. But they genuinely filmed that. And I'm assuming this wasn't covered in the behind the scenes documentary, but I assume that when they pull the car over and Luke shoots the two policemen, someone grabs the camera, takes it out through the window, shows the scene on the ground, and then they can switch the car or they superimposed an image of the car onto the shot at the end because this huge rig was on top of the car the whole time mm-hmm. in order to film it. But mm-hmm. I think that scene stands out and we don't always talk about different filmmaking techniques on the podcast because of the fact we're focusing on the screenplay. But that scene contains numerous over a dozen story beats in itself in a single one shot and it tells you so much about theo's relationship with his ex-wife julian it tells you so much about the interaction between all of the different characters kind of what character miriam is going to be who luke is we're introduced to key and she's so defensive and that raises our suspicions as well and also the fact the tone just varies from utter elation and happiness right at the very beginning to utter chaos by the end it's a whole story in itself in about four and a half minutes Mm -hmm. as i mentioned earlier it's about action really showcasing storytelling it's not you know having action to make sure the audience isn't bored which is kind of how i 
often hear action sequences being used in films. You know, we got to pick up the pace. So let's uh, add an action sequence here or a chase sequence there to kind of quicken it up. But Alfonso Cuaron never does that in his films. Every action sequence is telling you something about the characters, about the story, about the themes, about anything of that sort. And in this case, that this was like the main sequence that stayed in my mind when I first watched it and just leaving the cinema thinking, how the fuck did they do that? Like it mm-hmm. was like yeah. this. I think it's a, it's kind of a, I've noticed he does this a lot where you're witnessing action from inside, you know? So it's almost like you're, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the scene in Roma. You know, there's this whole, uh, you know, very violent scene happening outside with the protesters and the police and, you know, it's utter chaos, very similar to this scene. And, you know, we're experiencing the outside through what they're going through in the inside of the building. So they're, yeah, you know, yeah. seeing that. So it's kind of the same sort of, it's a very effective technique, you know, because it kind of gives you that very front row seat feeling into the action. So it's giving you all the suspense, but also kind of giving you information to yeah, who these characters are and shifting the story 100%. You know, you, like you said, they started off fairly happy. They're on a mission. And then all of a sudden you have one of your main characters or what you thought was probably going to be a main character just die yeah. very, very shortly into the film. I mean, Julianne Moore at this point in her career as well as one of the most famous actresses in the world you're not expecting her to just get shot in in one of the opening sequences yeah no exactly you know she's a very popular actress and so i was shocked when she she died so quickly because then it kind of gives you that feeling of well well, then what's going to happen now it kind of opens up exactly all possibilities for for stories sweeps the carpet right out from under you and it also creates this point of no return for theo and from a story writing perspective, yeah, that's one of the necessary elements in a lot of stories, and especially in a story like this, which is an everyman odyssey. It's very much a hero's journey. This is one of those points of no return. It's built up gradually. There's about three beats in that, which are firstly that Julian dies and the emotional impact that has on Theo. Secondly, when Key reveals to him that she is pregnant, and that is what Julian had been keeping secret from him. And thirdly, when he finds out that the fishes are planning to kill him. And that, of course, Julian's death was a result of their own actions. That all ties together and creates this point of no return that has him going out. And symbolically, it's illustrated really well by having him go out with no shoes on. And then pretty much for the rest of the film, he's without shoes. And you feel the pain in all these different moments where he's running around almost barefoot, you know, he, he gets these sandals from Jasper's house and he's wearing them in a war zone later on. And it just works brilliantly because it reveals who this character, just his vulnerability, I think. And you very rarely see Theo do anything too aggressive. He does, he does kill Sid when he's being chased, but he never picks up a gun and starts marching towards all the other soldiers and, he doesn't turn into an action hero. Yeah, He feels relatably like a guy who was just working in an office two or three days before this all the way through. I think that's kind of what I mean by you're projecting a lot as an audience member. You're projecting yourself into him. 
you know, we're not having too many uh, scenes with him kind of breaking down. Although there is that powerful moment shortly after uh, she dies and, you know, he's kind of just walking in the forest. And I think that was great too, showing some character moments uh, without saying anything, you know, he's walking and he doesn't seem emotional about what just happened. You know, his ex-wife just died. And I guess that wave of grief just kind of took him over and he just falls to the ground. I mean, what a, what a great way to show character. You're about to see his, well, just take care of it with a drink. That's how he's been handling his life. But then you see this is way too big for to, for it to be fixed with, with a drink. You know, so I thought that was pretty great. Exactly. It all comes crashing down on him. I'd just like to look very quickly at the way the screenplay portrays that scene where Key reveals she's pregnant. I think that's done really, really well. It comes across very well in the film, as it did in the screenplay, which is essentially the instructions in the screenplay are interpreted as we should just leave the camera lingering on his face because something like this is so unbelievable to someone who has for almost two decades come accustomed to the idea that there are going to be no more children ever. And we just watch his face. And in the screenplay, it's described as she's staring straight into his eyes. Three million possibilities cross his mind in an instant. But there is only one truth. He is pregnant. I think that he somehow acted out that instruction. Exactly that action line, I think, was the expression on his face. Three million possibilities running through his mind all at once. There's got to be some explanation. And that actually happens in the book as well. The people had phantom pregnancies or believed they were pregnant right. for many years after, after the initial incident. And eventually everyone got used to that being, no, there's got to be some other explanation. There's got to be some other explanation. It's not real. And in the book, it takes him actually to listen to the, the heartbeat of the baby through, right. through her belly. But in the film, it's, it's obviously a visual medium and we can clearly see she's pregnant. And yeah, It's just a magic moment when the camera switches from his face back to her and we finally know what's going on. And I think that's a good example of the screenplay giving the actor just enough of a circumstance that you don't have to act out anything crazy. You know, I think... If, if you look back at that scene and you look at both actors, you know, Key and, and then Theo, they, they don't really move their face a lot. They're in a state of, like, he's in a state of shock and we can tell, but he's not overselling it because the, the context is enough for us to project our own disbelief with him. And I think if you would have had Theo be a little bit more melodramatic about it or a little bit more showy, then it, it kind of takes us from that moment too. That's something that I've been learning a lot too with just watching actors perform, you know, the dialogue and stuff is that sometimes or most of the time less is more in the acting as well. You know, if you write something as specific and as detailed and layered as, you know, a script like this, then I think your results from the people playing those characters that you're writing is that it's going to be not as um, complicated as a performance. You know, you're really selling the story. You're not really selling 
a performance. And I think most actors want to sell the story. They're not looking to sell their own sort of showy performance. Well, I think most actors, I can't speak for all of them, but, you know, essentially I think the actors just want to really be true to the script and be true to what the story is trying to say. And I think this is like you say, like it was, you read it and it is pretty much that page, that moment come to come to life on the screen there. One question I want to ask you about the f- sequences that follow after they finally escape from the fishes and they go to Jasper's. That scene is one of the ones that is rewritten a bit more from the draft screenplay and actually has the fishes come and discover that they were at Jasper's house. And I just want to ask if you think that worked and if it was believable or if it worked better in the version that they had before where Jasper takes them to no man's land and helps them cross into the refugee camp and then he gets killed by German shepherds, the The police dogs, essentially. Yes. So um, in the script, when Theo goes to Jasper's house with Key, he takes him to no man's land. Obviously, we don't have Janice there because in the script, she died earlier. In the film, the five fishes find them and they kill Jasper. So Jasper is able to buy them some time by confronting them. I like the film version better. I, I thought it was really interesting. The whole idea of no man's land, just to kind of explore that a little bit in, in the world building. But I just felt it was so effective just seeing Jasper being kind of taunted by them. What that does too is to show their sort of ruthlessness. You know what I mean? I think when you set up a very lovable, almost innocent, very good humored character like that, like Jasper, and then you have your antagonist kill him in the way they did, it not only creates a very sort of tragic ending, but it kind of raises the stakes as to who these people are. I think it makes them more dangerous. So when we see them again, we fear them a little bit more. I think what the film version did was that it just raised the stakes and it kind of made the whole situation a little bit more dreadful as opposed to in in the script, in the original version, I felt like it was too rushed. You know, I think in the film, they took their time kind of being at Jasper. So I didn't mind hanging out with Jasper a little bit more before, you know, he, he has to go. And one of the really cool moments that I don't think is in the script is that Actually, Jasper has this really lovely interaction with Key, and he's talking to her about Theo. So we're getting a little bit of insight into Theo as well. And it's that really cool scene where Theo is, you know, eavesdropping on sort of what he's saying to Key. So I think it was, I like, I personally like the film version. I liked how they, they tweaked it. What about you? I do think having more time at his house was really, really effective. I think it worked brilliantly to have that moment of tenderness with Key. And you could see him repeating the same kind of lines he used with Theo. Right. And just there's something very innocent about that and very enjoyable, very delightful. Um, Very old man of him. (laughs) Exactly. And he's meant to be 75. He's meant to be an aging hippie. Yeah. It's just great to see him have that last moment where he's still really, really alive and all of that joy that he brings into the film. Yeah. I do think it might be difficult to explain how the fishes found where Jasper lived. Although in my mind, it made sense that, okay, this is a fascist country. 
the fishes know someone in the government who knows where Theo has been. In some way, everyone's movements are being tracked, and anyone who's kind of living out on the edges, like Jasper was, really is being monitored just as much as anyone who lives in the cities. But perhaps having them cross into no man's land and having Jasper sacrifice himself that way takes away any plot holes that you might consider, considering that the fishes managed to track them down and go to his house. But aside from that, I think either one works effectively. But it's it's harder to explain why Theo stands around and watches Jasper die, except for the fact that it's just so heartbreaking for him that he feels like he owes it to his friend to see how he dies, even though there's nothing he can do to save him. So I think there's both versions are equally interesting in a way, as long as the extended time period at Jasper's house was included eventually. I think that was a very good addition to the film. Hmm, that's an interesting point. I guess you're right. I, I never questioned how they found them, but I guess now I am. <laughs> uh, but I, now I had, this film is ruined. <laughs> well, that just went down a couple points. I just bought the idea that, you know, they're very aggressive and very determined people looking for them. I think part of the fascination or the effectiveness of that scene of having Theo watch Jasper die is it's almost like you can't look away. Yeah. That, that, that feeling. I think that's kind of what I got from that scene. It's, it's like, and it's, it's also that, but it's also like, well, in case there's something I can do, you know what I mean? Cause you don't know how that, it's going to unfold. There's all these variables, you know, who knows Jasper might have like a secret shotgun or something, you know, he's kind of just on edge waiting for, and as an audience, I think that's kind of how we were feeling too, watching it for the first time. It's like you, you're hoping for the best, but you deep down know he's going to die, you know, and it's just that dreadful feeling. And, and I think that that works in effectively too. But um, yeah, it's a very tragic scene. I love Michael Caine in this movie. I forgot how funny he was. Anyways, I hope I'm like him at his age. I hope that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a brilliant role for him. And it's it's one of his most memorable, I think, for, for younger audiences who didn't grow up watching him in his more yeah. iconic roles, Get Carter, Italian Job, things like that. Very different. I think we should talk about the final sequence now. It is very shocking it's memorable it's seeing all of britain turned into an absolute war zone essentially seeing the reality of these refugee camps that we've been hearing about for the entirety of the film up until this point in the screenplay it's people are described as forlorn malnourished desperate trapped faces captured refugees staring back at them one of the big differences between the screenplay and the film is that miriam is not taken away during their entry into Bexhill, but actually is present for the birth. And like in the book, she is there to deliver the baby. Yep. However, I really like this rewrite where Miriam goes missing. Not because of what happens to her, of course, but it's the fact that it makes the final scene so intimate between... Theo, who has no idea what he's doing, and the plan was always to have the midwife there. That was the entire point, is to make sure the midwife is there for the birth. And suddenly, the plan is ruined, and there's no medical knowledge there. In my mind, it's this return to the origins of humanity again. She's giving birth like 
a prehistoric woman would have done in the earliest days of humanity. There is no knowledge of midwifery. There's no knowledge of... They, they have no medical supplies with them. They, they've just got his booze to, sanit- to sanitize his hands, and that's it. There's nothing. That scene is really, really powerful. Obviously, the two performances carry it really well. And there's some very strong parallels, I think, to the birth scene in Roma, which yeah. Alfonso Cuaron, he likes these birth scenes to be significant moments for his female characters. And for Key, it is what she has been waiting eight months to happen. And suddenly it's happening and it's terrifying. It's nothing like the plan was going to be at all. And just because the child is born doesn't mean that they're safe Yeah. in any way. But there's just this moment where it feels like, well, that's one box ticked. You know, <laughs> the rest of humanity's survival continues from this moment on. Yes. And it's almost like you have um, all these kind of like how you were saying, like different checklists to the final beats of the inevitability of the story, which is you have the birth, then you have a betrayal mm-hmm. when it comes back and um, he discovers that she's pregnant. Well, that, you know, she, there's a baby now, but not, not only that, but he was already um, contemplating who he was going to give them to. Cause he realized that the, the five fishes were looking for them and that the government was looking for them. So, so they get betrayed. So then there's that. They manage to, as you mentioned earlier, Theo kills Sid uh, in self-defense. And they, they make it. But by making it, now they're in like a huge war zone. So this refugee camp is now in the middle of a battle. So now you're concerned with the safety of the baby. But then guess what happens? Oh, look, the fishes are back. And then the stakes go higher. And then she gets um, she gets taken away, and at that point, I think that's sort of the sort of like the stakes at their highest, you know, because the baby's with her. They're in the middle of this war zone. The antagonists have her, and Theo he doesn't even have a gun on him, and like you mentioned, he's just wearing those sandals that Jasper gave him. You know, he's literally in the middle of the worst possible circumstances. And again, this is a I believe this was the oneer, the longest oneer in the film. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's wonderfully choreographed. It must be so well rehearsed. Oh yeah, must. Of course in the screenplay these these one shots are not actually written that way. They do have different scene headings and obviously Alfonso Cuarón it's it's part of his genius there to see where certain parts of the film could be shot in that fashion right and the way that it is both a vehicle for storytelling and gives you the effect of claustrophobia being on the edge of survival all of that it's it's something that he obviously comes back to with gravity very shortly afterwards but it's it's just it's a masterpiece you know and i think part of why the film is so brilliant is because he was constantly looking for areas in which he could do something that was extremely creative and very, very powerful. And, you know, I, I can imagine it must have been very difficult to be one of his cameramen. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
but I can imagine. It, it was worth it. It was worth it. <laughs> yeah, I believe this is a uh, nine-minute one-shot, and which is the longest one in the film. And they did it just a couple times, I think, because you know it took so long to reset everything. Because not only do you have the choreography, but you have explosions going off. There's only so many times you can do those. So I think it was they used the last take that they did, and. That was the last one that they had to do because they had to leave that location. Like they didn't have that location anymore. And they started the scene and I think maybe 30 seconds into it, the blood that was like on a character who gets shot gets splattered mm. onto the camera lens. So you see a splatter of blood. But Alfonso Cuaron, he yelled cut, but because a bomb went off, nobody heard him. So they kept going. <laughs> they actually went and filmed the whole thing. And that's the take they use because everything that came after was perfect. Like everything just worked. Well, the splatter, you feel it when right. you're watching it. You, yeah. It's exactly. like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and that wasn't intended. So like, you know, when um, Emmanuel Lubeski, who was the cinematographer, you know, because they had to go all the way to the top of the building. And then, so they finally come out of the building and they tell Alfonso Cuaron, like, you know, we did it. We got the shot. And Alfonso Cuaron, um, he told them about the blood splatter, uh, but they were able to see, they were able to make him see how beneficial that was going to be to the mm-hmm. film. So that's the take that's in the film. Uh, one, one other big change in this scene as well is that in the screenplay, there's much more of a European feel to it. There's all these different European refugees. They're all singing the French national anthem and there's just this, yeah. this feeling of, it, it's much more related to the French Revolution. It, it's inspiring in a different way because it's related to democracy. And in the film, it's an Islamic uprising. There's a lot of guys covering their faces, shouting Allahu Akbar, Allah is great, mm. shooting rifles in the air. And I think it's really, really important to remember just how significant and how an audience was going to read that in Britain the year after the big Islamic terrorist attack in 2005. That was a really big statement to make a sequence like that in this film. And it's foreshadowing, I think, things that are still going on in Britain today with regards to these questions of identity and citizenship and who is British and who is not British. And I think at the time it was felt very strongly in the audience to see scenes like that supposedly happening on British territory. Even though it was a science fiction, it felt at the same time very realistic as well. Very plausible. That's interesting hearing it from, you know, sort of the English perspective of of the film. One of the most memorable images from the film for me is right before the sequence around the bus and uh, a couple of agents, officers go into the bus and they start taking some people away. It's a very tense scene, but by the end of it, they take Miriam. So going back to that's one thing that shifted in the script. And, you know, she gets taken and she is placed in, in line in a row with a bunch of other people with bags over their heads, other refugees. And mm-hmm. you have no idea why she was put in that row or why those people were put are there to be shot and killed and you see all the cages. And again, we're witnessing all of this from inside 
somewhere else from inside the bus. But the last image we see is as they're leaving is of them putting the bag over her and you don't have to see the rest to know what happens. But the power of suggestion in that scene is way more powerful than showing them shoot her or do anything else. It's just mm-hmm. so brilliant in how just that minor suggestion gives such a horrific feeling and impression afterwards. And again, early 2000s, images of people with bags put over their heads were images we related to Iraq and to Guantanamo Bay. Mm. Those were places that we were seeing those images reflected in real life. And Alfonso Cuaron is very clear about the way he makes films. He's, he's not pushing a particular message on you. He's including images that he thinks will reverberate, that he thinks audiences will connect with, and they'll make their own interpretations of what they're seeing. He's not taking any moral stance in this particular story, except to say, what kind of a world tolerates the abduction of people based on their race or their citizenship status and puts them in camps? There are ethics there, but it's he's he's not preaching either. It's just left there because your mind will do the thinking for you. Right. The film doesn't have to tell you what to think. Exactly. And and again, you know, in the world that we're living in now, specifically, and everything that's been going on in terms of just the whole immigration situation in this country and something that obviously affects a lot of people I know and, and to a lot of people in the world, you know, these images are scary because it's it's almost like it's too close for comfort. So it, it's it's like you said, it doesn't linger, but it, it's provoking you with with things to think about, which is great. And then there's this beautiful religious metaphor or symbolism in the moment where Theo and Key just walk out of the building and all the soldiers stop shooting. And in the screenplay, it's described the soldiers part like the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. It's going back to the Bible. That's our point of reference for this image as well. Suddenly, all of the fighting stops because even all these men who have had no future to look forward to, no future generations to fight for, everyone just sees this newborn infant and lets them pass safely through. And they put the fighting on hold, but it's also a very dark and funny moment darkly funny when as soon as one rocket gets fired everyone starts shooting again that they they've forgotten about the baby moments later and everyone goes back to murdering and massacring each other yeah just a brief moment of clarity i think that's a a lovely commentary on humanity in general just the length of our memory it's important to to make to to make some reference to just how short term our memories can be when it comes to these things. Yeah. And just sort of how, like I said, that the imagery is very powerful in the film. It's uh, again, the, having a baby crying or having a baby, you know, in the midst of all these soldiers, all this violence, you know, that in itself is such a powerful scene to end the film with, you know, sort of that's like, well, not the literal scene, but the last sequence of the film. And how it reaches towards, I think to me that pretty much is the climax of the film, you know, in a way, because the whole, it's almost like the secret's out in the open now. 
this is almost like the presentation to the world, you know, of, of this baby uh, that she names Dylan, I think. Yeah, it's the, um, in the Christian tradition, it's the Annunciation, right? Yeah, it's the, it. the yeah. moment that supposedly unites all of the world around the newborn infant. And right. the score, the score is just designed for that. It was composed for that moment to be this uplifting, transcendent. Very angelic in feeling, you know. Yeah. And then, of course, we do get these final sequences. And I know I made a comparison to Casablanca earlier. I don't think that this film is in any way a retelling of Casablanca or anything like that. But I do think that Quadon was influenced by the final scene of Casablanca, which is, of course, the moment where there is a revelation at the last minute about the guy and what you think is going to happen and how you think it's going to end. In the screenplay, it's quite clear that Theo gets shot and everyone knows about it. Like He knows, Key knows, Luke knows because he shot him. In the film, that moment is held right to the very end. And then he reveals he's been shot and he's he's not going to make it. And they're just floating on this rowboat in the fog. And I do think there is something a little Casablanca-y about that final moment. Just the fog sweeping over the final scene and the woman going on without the guy who had made a sacrifice for her. That's so true. Yeah. I can definitely see those those beats being very similar. And instead of a plane, you have a, a, a boat. And of course, as Quadon designed it, the idea is that we should respond to that final sequence in a way that is particular to our own psychology. Do we see that as a success and a moment of hope? Or do we see it as a dark, unsatisfactory ending? Do we see it as a failure? And for me, it it is a hopeful moment, I think. It is the achievement of the story. It is the rebirth. But I think there's just something about storytelling in that sense that you can you can end a story in a particular way and you don't need to pretend that you know what's going to happen next. If you just end it on the right note, just enough positivity, the majority of the audience will go away thinking, well, they made it. That was a happy ending. The boat is called the tomorrow, I believe. You know, so there, there is that hope of, you know, yes. the future because the whole thing is that there's this hopelessness about the future because uh, the end of the species is coming up. But here you have a, a boat that symbolizes a promise for the future and you have this baby. And going back just a little bit with, you know, the reveal of him, you know, dying or that he was injured. I, I love that tweak too, because, you know, it just kind of gives you more of that sense of like, he was just so focused on getting her to that boat that he, he himself didn't even realize that he had gotten hurt. It's that sort of, I guess, adrenaline sort of a momentum that he's kind of going through that doesn't let him see that he's actually gotten hurt. Um, so I think that's way more effective towards the end there because it just kind of reveals everything that he sacrificed in that moment. So I thought that was a pretty good, good change too. So let me ask you a question. So you say when you, you know, at the end you feel hope, what does that mean to you? Why do you feel that at the end there? 
I think the hope is twofold because one is that Theo actually by dying, it shows that it shows the good in humanity is still there. That some people, even though they've encountered so many along the way, the fishes, Sid, other characters who would do anything to get a hold of that child and use that child's life for evil, that there are still some people out there who are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for the promise of the future. So in that sense, I see it as hopeful. And the second is, I think, the the easier reading, which is, of course, just the fact there is a new life, the potential for humans to repopulate and with new ideals that are being imparted from a mother who is an innocent at heart. She's not perfect, but she's an innocent, I think. And and that is what's endearing about Key as a character, is that she's a young mother. She never planned she's an unplanned pregnancy and she was not prepared for it and she's she's not ready for all of this. And there's something about that that kind of makes her the perfect mother because she didn't ask for the responsibility. Right. The same with Theo. You know? It's like no one asked him to do all those things until you know he kind of had to but um for me it's very very similar to what you said you know it's just the whole idea behind that there was just so many people against this happening you know the odds were not in their favor you know and yet that baby managed to get there despite everything that happened in the film despite being shown constant violence abuse horrible atrocities of humans doing crazy things to other humans, all that violent imagery. But yet at the end, you have that kid on that boat waiting for the tomorrow. And then it happened. Like he managed to get there. So I think that to me gives me that feeling of enough people did the right thing for that to happen. Because it wasn't just Theo. There was Miriam. There was there was Jasper. There was all these people that contributed, gave their lives. So it's the little bit of good in humanity, enough of it, to make this happen. And it wasn't even that much, you know, it just took a couple of people and a couple of good intention wills that allowed it to happen. So I think it just shows the, the endurance of humanity as well. So yeah, so I feel hope as well. I think that's a perfect note to end it on. I will say that whether you liked the ending or not, the book will offer a completely different alternative ending to this story with many parallels to the story that happens in the film. And it's worth reading and experiencing completely fresh with no spoilers, not knowing what's going to happen and read that ending, uh, which I think is a very compelling alternative, but very different to the vision that uh, clearly Alfonso Cuaron had for Children of Men and his insistence on not providing answers, but the ending of the book as well, I think, doesn't give you all the answers. It it also has an interesting crossroads and it leaves it there. So if you enjoyed the ending of the film, I think you would also enjoy the ending of the book. Oh yeah, they, they end in very, very similar terms, for sure. And yeah, read the book, it's amazing. 